every person who is incarcerated has the right to access health care while they are incarcerated. You haven't been working, you have no money, you have lint in your pockets and a box full of legal paperwork. You get one month of funding through IDOC for housing. What that means is that you would need to find a job within the first week that you're released because it takes about two weeks to get a paycheck. And then on that third week, that next month's rent is due. Welcome back. This is Something for the Pain, a podcast produced by Project Echo Idaho, made for Idaho's healthcare professionals working to prevent, treat, and facilitate recovery from opioid and substance use disorders in Valley County and throughout the Gem State. I'm your host, Sam Steffen. Well, the E stands for extensions, looking where we aim to be. CH is for community healthcare, the welfare of you and me. On today's episode, we're talking all about opioid and substance use disorder treatment and recovery for individuals who are also involved in the justice system. We'll hear from Dr. Radha Sadacharan, a primary care physician with Centurion, the contracted healthcare provider for the Idaho Department of Corrections. Following that presentation, I'm talking with certified peer recovery support specialist and former executive director of the Peer Wellness Center, Rebecca Lee. Rebecca is going to be talking in greater depth about some of the challenges facing justice-involved individuals who have a co-occurring substance or opioid use disorder upon release from jail or prison, as well as some of the resources available through the Peer Wellness Center's Day One program. All of that is coming up in today's episode of Something for the Pain. Here's Dr. Radhasada Charan presenting her lecture on substance use disorder treatment for justice-involved patients. This presentation was recorded live as a part of Echo Idaho's Perinatal Substance Use Disorders series on June 23rd, 2021. To introduce the presenter, here's Echo Idaho's program director, Lachelle Smith. Welcome to Echo Idaho Perinatal Substance Use Disorder. I am Lachelle, as you know, will facilitate the conversation today. We're really pleased to have Dr. Radha Sadacharan, who will give us a talk on SUD treatment for justice-involved patients. So Radha, if you want to remind us who and where you are, and then the floor is yours. Thank you. I'm Dr. Radha Sadacharan. I'm a family med and addiction med doc at the Boise VA. Prior to coming to the Boise VA, I did quite a bit of work in correctional health, specifically in Rhode Island and in Houston, Texas and Seattle, focusing on MAT access for individuals and prioritizing primary care, um, especially for people with substance use disorders. So this is near and dear to my heart as a topic, and I'm still working with justice-involved folks within the veteran setting and then also working with the treatment court folks too here, mostly through education for treatment court team members. SUD treatment for justice-involved patients. 
Um, I'm going to operate under the assumption that not everyone is familiar with corrections slash correctional healthcare. So we'll just take a few minutes first to introduce it. Um, but our three learning objectives, what I hope you all get out of this chat is one, to be familiar with the correctional structures in the United States, including healthcare provision, two, to identify common medical conditions that come up more frequently with justice-involved folks, and then three, discuss ways to improve SUD care access for justice-involved individuals in the perinatal period within the state of Idaho. So people that are in correctional facilities, when they are incarcerated, they are incarcerated generally in three different types of facilities. There are prisons, there are jails, and there's community supervision, which I include within the criminal justice setting, but um, most of the time it's not in a facility. And so for the jurisdiction of each of those types of facilities, prisons are generally under either state or federal jurisdiction. Jails are more local. So jails are either county-based, for example, Ada County, Canyon County, or um, within the state. And so there are seven states across the U.S. that have a what we call unified correctional system where all of the facilities, jails and prisons, operate under one governing body, generally a DOC, a Department of Corrections. Idaho has their state prisons separate. And then we have county jails throughout the state. Um, and then community supervision exists at many different levels. It can be state, it can be federal, it can be local. And it really just depends on what someone was incarcerated for or potentially if they're within treatment court, how that supervision looks in terms of the level of it. So for people that are incarcerated in prisons, they usually have been convicted of a felony and their length of stay is generally more than a year. So think in long-term, generally more significant sentencing for whatever they've been charged for. 66% of people who are incarcerated within the state of Idaho uh, are incarcerated primarily for a supervision violation. With people that are in jails, usually these folks are pre-trial, so they haven't had their trial or sentencing yet, or they've been convicted of a misdemeanor. And then in terms of community supervision, those are, again, folks who are either post-incarceration or in lieu of. So if someone is under the jurisdiction of treatment court or if they have some type of community parole, that's where that lies. Um, and that's variable. You know, supervision can last for six months. It can last for 10 years. It really just depends. So the Prison Policy Initiative has this really helpful breakdown of people locked up in the United States. The majority of people are within state prisons. But a significant amount, over 25% of people, are housed in local jails. And so of those, the majority are not yet convicted and minority are convicted, generally either awaiting being sent to a prison facility or serving a um, shorter sentence. Federal prisons make up the minority of people that are in correctional facilities. And so I would say our focus truly should be on local jails and state prisons. Other types of correctional facilities include immigrant detention, territorial prisons, um, military prisons too. What I would also like to point out is that of the people who are incarcerated in state prisons, about 20% are locked up for mostly, again, major offenses, drugs. In local jails, that's an even larger amount. Uh, it says 111,000, but honestly, a lot of the property ones are also drug-related too. And so that's, again, the, the primary thing that they're locked up for. So jails, 
25% or more are directly related to some type of drug offense. Um, state prisons, again, about 20%. So most of us know that healthcare can, should be provided in corrections, but why is it provided in correctional facilities? There was a seminal legal case in 1976, Estelle v. Gamble, which essentially agreed that the deliberate indifference to the serious medical needs of prisoners is unnecessary and a wanton infliction of pain. And so that constitutes a violation of our Eighth Amendment rights. Just to remind our audience, the Eighth Amendment is the clause in the United States Constitution that stipulates excessive bail shall not be required, nor excessive fines imposed, nor cruel and unusual punishments inflicted. This means that every person who is incarcerated has the right to access health care while they are incarcerated. That being said, the different levels of health care that are available to individuals who are incarcerated are pretty variable. And so even if you have someone who is incarcerated and has substandard access to healthcare or is being provided care by a provider who maybe has not had their license or had it revoked, that care is still not a violation of their Eighth Amendment rights because they still have access to care. The other thing to think about too is healthcare should be provided in corrections because correctional health is public health and 97% of individuals who are incarcerated will return to their communities. And so this is a pretty large group of people, you know, 2.2 million people in the United States at any given time are within the correctional system. So we should do a good job of taking care of them while they're on the inside and when they're out too. So what is correctional health? Again, healthcare access is super variable. Within jails, generally it's pretty limited um, depending on the size of the jail or facility. And usually you can have contracts with local healthcare providers unless, um, as I had mentioned before, you're part of a unified correctional system. And then sometimes that means that there are state employees that provide that healthcare. Within the state of Idaho, my understanding is all county jails actually have their healthcare managed by one contract um, that's run by Jeff Keller, who's a physician in the state. And so he has advanced practice providers, nurse practitioners and PAs. He also has nursing on staff for um, county jails around the state. The healthcare coverage is paid for by the county or the state. There isn't insurance that exists for that. So it's written into the budget every year for whoever, again, is paying for that. With state prisons, um, it's variable. Some of it's on site. There are some places that do a good job of focusing on substance use disorder and mental health needs. Um, What's interesting is state prisons do not have guidelines for themselves. There are a couple governing bodies or people who make recommendations like the NCCHC when it comes to care provided. The NCCHC is an acronym that stands for the National Commission on Correctional Health Care. But the clinical practice guidelines that the Federal Bureau of Prisons have are, in my, in my opinion, quite good. So when we think about health care coverage, state prisons, it gets paid for from the state budget. Federal prisons gets paid for from the federal budget managed by the Bureau of Prisons. So common medical needs, the things that I have learned as a provider and that have been documented in the literature when it comes to common medical concerns for justice-involved individuals include an increased risk of chronic illnesses, which includes diabetes, hypertension, asthma slash COPs, respiratory diseases in general, and heart disease. When it comes to infectious diseases, we think about the increased risk of STIs and hepatitis C 
which is a big one, HIV. Tuberculosis used to be far more common in carceral settings. Um, and we still screen for it for people that come in. I can't speak to IDOC, but the understanding is because it is so much more common in correctional facilities, one should be screening for it. And then vaccine preventable diseases are far more common too for people who are justice involved. Substance use disorders. So the stats are a little bit variable in terms of the range, but at least 50% of people who have ever been incarcerated have been diagnosed with a substance use disorder at any given point in their lives. And that number is upwards of 75% when we have better tracking for it. And so if you look at states like Rhode Island, for example, has a really robust medication program for the treatment of opioid use disorder within the Department of Corrections. And because they have this, we offer all three FDA approved medications. We make sure to set people up for coordination of care on release. They screen every single person. And so the rate of positive screening for opioid use disorder itself is 50%. And that's not even accounting for other substances, such substance use disorders. So that I think kind of uh, gives us an idea of where we're at in terms of the environment, in terms of the risk to individuals who are justice involved for substance use disorders. Opioid use disorder is probably the thing that's highest on people's radars right now when it comes to treatment because we have evidence-based medications for the treatment of OUD and because um, this is coming up as a violation of people's ADA rights, so American Disability Act rights, um, when they don't have access to their medications while they're incarcerated. So I started with kind of the most concerning treatment for opioid use disorder slash care provided in correctional facilities. And that is if someone comes in and they either are, they're taking methadone or buprenorphine regularly or naltrexone regularly for their opioid use disorder, they can be withdrawn from that either with or without the use of comfort medications. And that's Worst case scenario, someone comes in, they're stable on their methadone dose, and then they just get pulled off cold turkey. And that used to be a lot more common. It's still quite common in correctional facilities. Um, a step above that, I guess you could say, is a treatment group access. And so a lot of correctional facilities will offer recovery groups, um, generally peer support, while it's, I would say, the best way to accomplish this work. Um, is not as accessible within correctional facilities. So the treatment group access can be variable. It depends on who you have hired within your organization, if it's within the correctional facility itself or they contract out. There are some private organizations that do a lot of good mental health work and so will provide support for treatment group access. There are many correction facilities that have residential programs. And so the residential housing model can be really helpful in encouraging that treatment group access and um, allowing people to build communities that would mimic um, the communities that we would hope they would be able to build on the outside too. And then what I view now is the gold standard is access to medications while people are incarcerated for their opioid use disorder. During incarceration, again, the focus of this is perinatal. So I was hoping to kind of touch on the treatment of opioid use disorder while someone is pregnant and incarcerated. And these are very specific to the state of Idaho. So within the jails, again, which are managed at the county level, they don't have people that are prescribing buprenorphine regularly at this point in time. Um, if someone goes into a jail facility and 
We know they, for example, have a sanction against them for two days or three days, and they are maintained and stable on methadone. My recommendation would be to contact the patient's methadone provider. So if you, for example, are taking care of a patient or part of a clinic that takes care of a patient who's stable on methadone and is pregnant, and you know that there's a jail sanction coming up because they violated parole. Generally, it's the case that a couple of the providers of methadone in the Treasure Valley area would deliver the medication to the jail many times for a fee, but they would still do it. If there are providers who agree to it within jail settings, there is a 72-hour waiver that can be utilized to provide methadone for the treatment of an individual who is in a hospital settings or infirmary settings. So if, for example, the jail has an infirmary and they accept a patient who is stable on methadone and they are trying to do the right thing by the patient and don't want them to go into withdrawal, they would be able to prescribe that methadone for those three days, no longer, but at the same dose as what they are on in the community. When it comes to buprenorphine, buprenorphine, especially given that late April change from SAMHSA that you don't need a certification to get your DEA waiver now. The late April change from SAMHSA that Dr. Sadacharan is referring to here is an update to the practice mandates around ex-waiver certification. Prior to April of 2021, providers were required to undergo training and certification requirements in order to earn their ex-waiver, a designation that makes one eligible to legally dispense and prescribe medications for opioid use disorders, like methadone, buprenorphine, suboxone, and naltrexone. To make it easier for providers to earn their ex-waiver in the hopes of making the life-saving medications more available to patients, SAMHSA, the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, recently implemented an alternate notification procedure whereby providers could become eligible to earn their ex-waiver to treat as many as 30 patients without taking any additional training. This change became effective April 28th of 2021, several weeks before this lecture took place. Despite the fact that training is no longer required to treat up to 30 patients, it's still highly recommended. In partnership with PCSS, Providers Clinical Support System, Echo Idaho offers a special four-hour X-Waiver training a few times a year. For details about our next training, visit our website at www.uidaho.edu slash echomat. You can advocate for that patient to continue receiving their medication, which can be verified by whatever pharmacy the jail contracts with at intake. And so I'm very happy to go through kind of ways to think about this. Prison, again, is longer sentences. And so when we're thinking about methadone, it's really difficult to advocate for in Idaho. And there are quite a few barriers in place. And I'll say it's difficult to advocate for in the majority of states. I think that being rural is really, really tough with this because as we all know, if you don't have an opioid treatment program near you, especially in a rural place, how are you going to get this medication, which is federally controlled and regulated very highly to the individuals who need it? The interesting thing about the DEA regulation of OTPs. OTP stands for Opioid Treatment Program. Is that prisons slash correctional facilities can actually apply for their own federal regulation model. So if they decide that they want to treat opioid use disorder with methadone, they can apply to be a site. If you have a large enough population, and if you're looking to treat this with evidence-based medication, then it's a great idea to do as long as you know that you can set people up for success on their way out. Um, with buprenorphine, there's been talk about getting this rolling at Pocatello for IDOC for 
at least two years now. Um, but my understanding is they still have not started to have this be available to individuals who are incarcerated and have a diagnosis of abuse disorder. But what I would say is for any pregnant person that you know who is incarcerated in a prison setting, part of IDOC, um, I would discuss it with the facility and emphasize to them that that is standard of care. And if that individual withdraws, they have the risk of a miscarriage or preterm labor slash preterm contractions. Um, in federal prisons and a lot of other state prisons, this is actually part of the standard of care for pregnant individuals that are incarcerated. One of the biggest questions that comes up is the importance of reentry. Again, since 97% of people are going back to their communities, we need to make sure that they're set up for success on their way out. Uh, we know that there's a hundredfold increase in the risk of overdose within the first two weeks post-incarceration. And so how do we help people avoid overdose, especially fatal overdose? The thing that we know about incarceration is with limited access, and I would, I would never say there's no access to drugs while people are locked up, because there is, um, with limited access to opioids, to alcohol, to benzos, um, people end up having a significant decrease in their tolerance. And so the chaos of reentry combined with the memory of what you used to be able to take in terms of a substance without having the risk of overdose those things kind of go out the window. And so people are at a far higher risk of overdose on release. My hope is places will give naloxone on release. Um, and I, my understanding is that uh, Idaho Harm Reduction Project is trying to do some of that work, which would be great. The things that we can do are connect individuals to resources on release for getting involved in treatment. So that's that second part is the access to evidence-based treatment. One of the more successful models of access at release is finding and connecting with low barrier buprenorphine clinics. So people who are coming out and are worried about using opioids can access in other places a low barrier buprenorphine clinic. For example, the Department of Public Health in Seattle, King County, has a low barrier access buprenorphine clinic right next to their um, needle exchange service, which is in downtown Seattle. So it's a great opportunity for people to walk up, get a first dose of buprenorphine, come back the next day, get a second dose of buprenorphine. If they show up three days in a row, then they can basically go up to the clinic that's just one floor above and enroll in their suboxone clinic or buprenorphine clinic, which is pretty great. And then Medical insurance should be in place at the time of reentry, and that definitely guides access to care. And so anything we can do to help that discharge coordination is integral to assisting patients in their recovery from substance use disorders, OUD specifically. There was a standing naloxone protocol at Rhode Island Department of Corrections where every single person who was being released, if they had a diagnosis of opioid use disorder in their chart, would not only be given naloxone to um, intranasal uses of naloxone, but there were education sessions in the visiting room for family and friends. And so inmates could get it and their family and friends could get it too. But yeah, there should be education there. Um, there should be preparation for folks at the time of release. And it's really, really tough. Things are so chaotic. How do you prioritize? What do you prioritize? I would say that if we can get 
naloxone distributed to every single person that is diagnosed with an opioid use disorder and also have naloxone in the reentry center, which I do believe that was a plan in place to have naloxone just there for people to be able to obtain um, through IDOC, then we're doing some of that work. So key team members for coordination of care. We talked a little about discharge coordinators. For IDOC, uh, it's run through Corizon, and there's a current bid actually for that medical contract. Generally, discharge coordinators are not as easily available in county jails just because of the size of the jails. When we think about other ways to coordinate care um, from the outside, I usually rely on treatment court coordinators, on the folks in community supervision, and on FQHCs and other health centers around the community to help with that care coordination. When someone goes through a jail setting, if they have cycled in and out very quickly, so three to five days, the hope is that that FQHC can see them pretty quickly when they come back out because the hope is they've already been in that system. And so access to care in that way can be better. But truly, if we have more discharge coordinators prior to people being released, it would probably be better off in terms of coordination of care at reentry. So key points. One, medical care is pretty variable and many times can be substandard in correctional facilities. Um, Two, justice involvement is associated with an increased risk of multiple medical and mental health illnesses, including substance use disorders. And three, the standard of care while pregnant for the treatment of OUD is either methadone or buprenorphine. And I would say pretty strongly that to not have access to this is a violation of ADA rights. Um, Puts patients at significant risk. Thanks so much. Speaking here is Melanie Nash, an ECHO participant. Um, I'm a doctor of of nursing practice and I teach at Gonzaga University, but I practice at the Genesis Community Health Clinic and we see a high volume of post-incarcerated persons. And so my question was, when they are released from prison or jail, do the social workers or caseworkers facilitate um, Medicaid sign up if they qualify? It is a great question. So most jail facilities do not have the capacity to provide discharge coordination on that level. Um, When it comes to IDOC, there's a reentry center where people can sign up for that. The tough part about it is you basically don't have health insurance coverage through the state until the moment you walk out that door. That's the first point at which it can be active. And so you can get everything prepped for it, but you got to push that button to get it activated on your way out. Um, What's interesting and I think really good about Medicaid expansion is if you have an individual who's incarcerated and they need to be hospitalized for an urgent or emergent condition, after 24 hours, the care is covered by Medicaid for the state. And so the good thing about that is it means greater continuity of care upon release because that's already in the system. And the hope is that, again, someone will help a person who's getting out get access to health insurance. And that's this specifically for Medicaid. When it comes to veterans, we're very lucky. Um, There are veterans justice outreach specialists who are generally social work trained. We have three at the Boise VA who are amazing and they manage part of the care coordination at discharge for any at slash release for any person who's a veteran that qualifies for VA benefits. So they had an honorable discharge. They've met certain criteria. Um, So they manage care coordination at time of release 
access to mental health services, substance use services, primary care services at the VA. And then they actually help with all of the treatment court veterans for Boise VA, VJOs, Veterans Justice Outreach Specialists, especially for the majority of counties within the state of Idaho. Some of the counties where there are veterans treatment courts actually go to other locales for VA systems. So Spokane manages some of the stuff up north. And then there are a couple places close to the Oregon border that are um, managed elsewhere. Yeah, really good resources for justice-involved veterans. This is Larissa Janishek. Larissa Janishek is a neonatal nurse practitioner in the Neonatal Intensive Care Unit at St. Luke's Health System in Boise. She was also a panelist for Echo Idaho's Perinatal Substance Use Disorder Series in 2020 and in 2021. It sounds like there's a lot of area for improvement. How do we advocate for improvement in these areas to help incarcerated people? Because it sounds like we really don't set them up for success. Uh, I think it's an excellent point. And I will make some comments about kind of where we're at with things. I will say that one, the short-term financial consequences of providing opioid use disorder evidence-based treatment in correctional facilities may be higher, but the long-term benefits to it are significant. And so if you're focused on decreasing recidivism, so reincarceration, if you are focused on economic viability where people actually have access to jobs and then they get housing and then they contribute to our economic benefit as a society, I would say that the financial benefits to providing opioid use disorder treatment while people are incarcerated are significant. The barriers that I see um, that I think that we could all stand to consider are right now the way that medical care is provided through IDOC is, again, through this private for-profit organization called Corizon, which 20-plus states utilize some type of organization like that to provide medical care to individuals who are incarcerated. There is a payout per patient per day in the form of an annual contract to that organization. And so the incentive, as you can imagine, is for the organization to keep as much of that money as possible. And I would say that if we challenged slash encouraged the state to think about um, not just the short-term cost to the state for balancing the budget annually, but also the fact that there are other states that are coming uh, into significant legal battles about the restriction of access to opioid use disorder treatments while people are incarcerated. So there have been at least three or four cases in the last two years um, for individuals who are incarcerated having their methadone or buprenorphine withheld, such um, being induced into withdrawal while they're locked up and they filed legal cases citing ADA violation and why. So I think that's probably going to happen in Idaho. Um, And if they can get ahead of it, it's probably the right thing to do. And the cool thing is there has been political interest from both Republicans and Democrats to do this work, because I think people do realize that financially it makes sense long term. You know, financially it makes sense. Politically, we need more push. um, And then we just need to be critical about how the care is being delivered. Thank you for that. If I, knowing that there are opportunities for systems level work, but today is today and I am one person, if I am a PCP that has a patient who's going to be in my care on reentry, what tools would you have for the provider and the patient in front of them? 
Yeah, um, for APCP that is managing the care of someone who's recently been released, I have like a template that I use for thinking about what I what questions I need to ask, what labs I need to get, what they're at increased risk for for that first visit coming back. And so that's what I do for my justice involved vets. You know, we like go through the um, list of like social determinants of health to make sure that they have stable housing, to make sure that they have an adequate support in terms of community, that they have contingency planning for any recurrence of use, that they have substance use disorder. We go through STI screening. We make sure that they're up to date on vaccines. When it comes to people re-entering the system, that's the problem is because usually you don't know when someone's going to go. Um, and so if you get word from a family member, a significant other that, oh, you know, like my husband got locked up and he's going to be there for at least a month in those settings, if I am familiar with the correctional facility itself, and I know someone that works there, I'll reach out to them and say, Hey, this person is likely within your custody. Um, these are the things that I would like to relay to you. And then I just documented in the chart that I've reached out. The tough part is like they are totally disparate systems. And so they don't talk. And there are a few systems across the U.S. that actually have good care that's being provided inside and outside. So Hennepin County in Michigan, the jail there has a doc, Tyler Winkleman, and I think a couple other providers who work in the jail and work in a community um, an FQHC there too. And so he sees people on the inside, they come to the outside. Uh, Brown University in Rhode Island has a contract that they manage for assisting with healthcare for the Rhode Island Department of Corrections. And they generally provide some specialty care, some MAT care, some primary care. And in that setting, it's not as fluid of a model of transitions of care, but it means that you have a provider who was working on the inside and on the outside. That again was Dr. Radha Sadacharan presenting her lecture on substance use disorder treatment for justice-involved patients. That presentation was recorded live as a part of Echo Idaho's Perinatal Substance Use Disorder series on June 23, 2021. If you'd like to watch the Zoom recording of that presentation, that video is currently available on the Echo Idaho YouTube channel, which you can access through our website. PowerPoint slide deck, as well as information about how to contact some of the organizations and services mentioned in that talk, are also available in our podcast show notes on our podcast webpage, www.uidaho.edu slash echo hyphen podcast. One of the things Dr. Sadacharan mentioned in that talk was that while peer support is generally one of the best ways to accomplish the work of helping individuals with opioid use disorders find treatment options that work for them, one of the limiting factors for individuals with opioid use disorder who are also incarcerated is being able to access that care from within their correctional facility. Previously on Something for the Pain, I spoke with Monica Forbes, nationally certified peer recovery support specialist and certified peer recovery coach supervisor, CEO of Recovery United, founder of Peer Wellness and The Rock, McCall's newest recovery-oriented community center. During our conversation, Monica mentioned a service offered by the Peer Wellness Center designed for returning citizens called the Day One Program. So our Day One Program was designed that people with lived experience who have re-entered society from a correctional facility can come in and pick you up at the gate and help you address all of those basic needs. Here to speak with me today in more detail about the Peer Wellness Center's Day One Program is Rebecca Lee, Nationally Certified Peer Recovery Support Specialist, Forensic Peer Support Specialist and former executive director of the Peer Wellness Center. Welcome to the program, Rebecca. So I was wondering if we could just start out by having you introduce yourself, um, just say your full name, where you work, and a little bit of background about your job. 
Yeah, my name is Rebecca Lee, and I'm currently employed with Peer Wellness Center. I had a position with Peer Wellness Center um, for four years as the executive director, and recently I've um, stepped down to provide administration support. I am a person in long-term recovery, and I have two wonderful children <laughs> and a wonderful husband and just an amazing dog named Lola. <laughs> And are you from Idaho? I was actually born in Alaska and then moved to Idaho uh, when I was two years old and I've uh, been here ever since. So um, I can officially say that I am an Idahoan. (laughs) Can you talk a little bit about how the day one program came about? So day one actually originated through a gentleman named Mark Person, um, who has his own personal lived in experience through IDOC. And he started this concept to help individuals getting released from incarceration, returning citizens. And we all got together and we're like, okay, how can we help make this program even bigger? And so uh, what we did is we started talking about what the needs are of those that are being released. We quickly, you know, were able to define what we were going to need in order to make this program successful. Um, So currently, the way it's staffed is that we have um, a director of Peer Wellness Center. We have a director um, of the day one program. And then below that are highly trained recovery coaches that are aware of the needs of those that are being released from prison. And so they're trained to be able to pick people up and know what to expect and also to be aware of what these individuals may be experiencing when they get out. Yeah. Can you say more about that and about some of the challenges facing folks who are just getting released? Incarceration looks different for everybody, of course, right? You have individuals that may have county time, which is typically a smaller amount of time served versus longer periods of incarceration through um, Idaho Department of Corrections through the prisons. And those experiences are varied by that that length of time. And so the longer an individual is incarcerated, there can be some extreme challenges. If they serve long term, such as 10 years, 20 years, imagine getting out and everything that you knew when you went in is completely different. The landscape has changed. Uh, There's new businesses. I've met a lot of individuals that went in where cell phones were kind of like little flip phones. Um, They weren't smartphones. And so they get out and they're like, how do I operate the smartphone? I don't know what to do. I've met individuals that have also went in back when we used to do paper applications, right, for jobs. And so when they get released and we don't do that anymore, you have to create a resume in order to gain employment. A lot of them are like, how do I do that? That being said, they go in for long periods of time and then they get out and they really have a short amount of time in order to become successful. And some of those challenges are, you know, you get one month of funding through IDOC for housing. And if you think about that, what that means is that for a whole month, your rent is covered at a sober living home, what have you. And so that would mean that you would need to find a job within the first week that you're released because it takes about two weeks to get a paycheck. And then on that third week, that next month's rent is due. And when you get released with absolutely nothing, that can be very overwhelming 
right? And so that's where day one comes in because there's a lot of things that individuals have to accomplish in order to be able to even get to that point of, okay, I need to look for work. And those challenges can be, they don't have a form of transportation. In this day and age, you have to have a cell phone, right? Especially with the pandemic, that was a huge challenge because they couldn't physically go in and let's say go to outpatient treatment if that was a requirement. And so we were able to secure cell phones for these individuals so that they could remain in contact with their parole officers, probation officers, so that they could do their outpatient treatment um, via telehealth. And not only that, they need to have basic necessities that a lot of us take for granted, right? Like, so food, Uh, when you get out and you go to your halfway house, they don't provide food for that person. And so, you know, they need to get food stamps. They also need to get Medicaid so that they can go to the doctor and follow up and, and also do their outpatient treatment. Some of the other things are closed. They get out with absolutely nothing, right? So they're starting over. And a lot of challenges that we've seen are that, you know, you can get a clothing voucher for a secondhand store. um, But what if that secondhand store doesn't have your size? It's very limiting, right? And so not only that, they have to go get a job. And so if you're in construction or the service industry, there are uniform requirements. So work boots, being able to find black slacks that are in your size and then also like non-slip shoes and you need hygiene items you need deodorant you need toothpaste you need all of these little things that we don't really think about in order for them to be successful and so that's why day one was designed was on your first day out upon release you're met at the gate by somebody who has personal lived-in experience and they're going hey it's okay i'm here for you and they're walking out with you and then you begin your journey on day one and that can be you know going to health and welfare to get the food stamp Um, It could be going to a food pantry to get a food box until those food stamps become active. Um, It looks like, you know, getting a cell phone, getting those hygiene items, potentially going to get a social security card. It can be a multitude of things, but the goal is, is to get as many of those things taken care of on that first day so that that next day that person can breathe a little bit, not be as stressed out about how they're going to obtain those things. And then they can maybe focus on actually finding that job or getting linked up with their, you know, outpatient treatment and so forth. That sounds like uh, just a amazing service. Um, I'm kind of curious to hear how, how uh, folks who are currently incarcerated or in prison or jail, how do they get connected with day one? So we've made an online submission form and while a person's incarcerated, they have a case manager inside the prison. And the job of the case manager is to know when that person's close to release. And they will meet with that individual to find out what their needs are. Like, do you have somebody to come and pick you up? Do you have family, friends? You know, what kind of things, resources are you going to need upon your release? And the case managers have access to this online form at our website. It's www.peerwellnesscenter.org. And there is a day one tab where they can submit that. That comes directly to 
to us. And once we receive that, we just put it on the schedule and then we respond back, Hey, we received this and we're going to be able to pick that individual up. And so they will convey that uh, information to them and let them know, Hey, this has been accepted. Uh, The day one folks will be there to, to get you when you get released. And because they're meeting right at the time of their release, is the transportation provided by Pure Wellness or is this just like the the recovery coaches or the caseworkers using their own vehicles? We're working on getting donations to be able to get a day one vehicle because that would be ideal. We do provide, you know, um, a mileage reimbursement to those folks. Um, But yeah, they do use their own vehicles and they're just, it's such an amazing team. Yeah, it sounds like it. And I'm aware of the Peer Wellness Center that's in Boise. Um, Is this a service that is also provided to other places in Idaho where there may be prisons or jails? To my knowledge, there are other areas in Idaho that uh, may provide the service to folks that are being released maybe from their county jails. But the way Idaho is established is that our prisons are located here in Boise. So a lot of these folks are being released from Boise. That doesn't necessarily mean that they will stay in District 4. We've also picked up individuals that are being released, but maybe they have a bus ticket to go to Coeur d'Alene or to go out of state even. And so we will get them to the bus stop or we will get them uh, to the airport so that they can make that connection and get to where they need to go. I also want to ask about folks who are coming out of a period of incarceration or jail time who also have a substance use disorder in their history. Um, In the earlier part of this episode, Dr. Sadacharan shared the statistic that about 50% of people involved in the justice system have had a substance use disorder at some point in their lives, and that that number can actually be as high as 75% when there's better tracking for it. Um, I'm just curious to hear about how Peer Wellness and Day One maybe kind of connects individuals who are being released from jail or prison with opioid and substance use disorder treatment services. More often than not, reentry and recovery are co-occurring. And so day one's specific focus is making sure that that individual gets their needs met on the first day that they get out. However, Peer Wellness Center also has trained recovery coaches that meet with these individuals ongoing and can establish some of those goals that they're trying to reach, but helping them map that out and what that would look like for them and encouragement. And then also getting them connected to other individuals that have similar lived-in experience because we know that the opposite of addiction is not is not the removal of drugs, but it's the connection to people. And so that's what makes a person more successful. Yeah, another thing that, um, that Dr. Sadacharan mentioned in her talk earlier in this episode is the varying degrees of access to treatment. Can you talk a little bit about the importance of finding ways to manage that during a period of transition from being incarcerated or in jail, moving back into society? It's a very widely discussed topic right now, and it's an exciting time for that um, because we're realizing one that individuals who go in specifically with opioid use disorder, they are at an increased risk for overdose once they are released because their tolerance level obviously goes way down. Where we see accidental overdoses is where an individual will try to just go back to what they were used to using. And that's where 
you know, we lose people there. And so there's been a lot of discussion around getting Vivitrol in the prisons and offering that to individuals prior to their release. Um, That way they can follow up with their outpatient treatment provider, let them know that they've received Vivitrol and then continue on that path with that outpatient provider. So yeah, I mean, I think it's great that we're all coming together and recognizing that we can help people and uh, talking about those challenges. And um, I've just seen a tremendous growth from Idaho. Um, So it's exciting to be a part of it. So we've talked on this podcast a lot about peer recovery supports and kind of what their role is in helping folks find a way into recovery. But Monica mentioned the term forensic peer support. Is that like a separate classification of peer support specialist? Yeah, so it is new. It's a direct uh, training to work with individuals that have been incarcerated because obviously they do have a, a different set of challenges versus someone just living with substance use disorder. And so that that training is developed uh, for these coaches. It's additional to what they already go through to be able to work with people who are returning citizens and how to best serve them. It does look a little different. You know, we've had people um, call up and they're like, oh my gosh, I'm on my way to work. I got a flat tire. I don't know what to do. And, you know, here's our team. They're like, I'm on my way. You know, at five o'clock in the morning, Mark's out there doing fix a flat and airing up this person's tire so that they can get on to work. It's just little things like that. And so forensic peers is based on specific set of challenges for individuals and also kind of having that crisis line, if you will, for those individuals to be able to call up and say, look, I'm facing this issue. What are some solutions or things that I can do to overcome this and being able to provide that support? Okay. That's a helpful clarification. I also wanted to ask, like, are there any success stories that come to mind? Yeah. um, There's one that really touched my heart. This individual got released from prison. I think he did like 10 years and he got out and he, he got this halfway house room. I mean, it was a very small room. It really wasn't much. And he was completely grateful for that. And he was so happy to be out. And um, he ended up landing a job and Mark went to go visit him and just check up on him and see how he was doing. He's like, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm okay. And he's like, I wish, you know, I had some socks. He goes, I have one pair of socks. And so every night I wash these socks and I hang them up to dry. And by the time I wake up in the morning, they're not quite dry but I got to put them on so I can go to work. And this gentleman is, you know, he's, he's big, he's very buff, he's bald, he's got tattoos and stuff. And um, it really touched Mark. And so he goes out and he didn't even tell the gentleman that he was going to do this, but he went and bought him a package of socks and he brings it back to him. And the part that was so touching is that here's this big guy, right? Just released from prison. And he starts crying because he's, so grateful that somebody would do something like that for him, you know, for just the smallest things that we take for granted. And um, that just blows me away. Like these are people and, and a package of socks just meant so much to this person. I've picked people up 
on their first day out and I've done day one and I always like to pick them up and just kind of introduce myself. And it's a little awkward for them because they are not really sure who I am or what I do, but I will take them out for a coffee or a hamburger and just kind of sit down and talk to them to break the ice. And they're always blown away when I tell them like, I have personal lived in experience with substance use disorder. And, you know, I've, I've been incarcerated before too. And so I know those feelings and that fear and they're like, really, you know, (laughs) and I'm like, yeah, and it's going to be okay. Like you're not alone. And that's why I'm here with you today, because I, I know those set of challenges that you face and they are always so grateful for that. And it's just amazing to watch people blossom and open up and become successful. And a lot of them are like, if it wasn't for somebody being there, I really don't know where I would be today. Yeah. I mean, and I can only imagine, you know, depending on how long somebody has been in coming out and just not being in your environment anymore for the first time can just be like sensory overload. And then with all the extra pressures that you must be experiencing to like get a job and find housing and all that stuff, that's a really high intensity situation. So I think it seems like this is a a huge, hugely important thing um, to be able to provide. Well, yeah. I mean, imagine being in there and every decision's made for you. You know where your meal's going to come from. You definitely know where you're going to lay your head that night. I mean, it may not be ideal, but it there's some form of comfort in it. And so to have to get out and make life altering decisions for yourself, that's overwhelming. They've been told for so long, like, no, it's okay. We got it. And this is what you're going to do. So having that peer support is crucial to a person's success because, you know, um, recovery coaches or, or forensic peers are trained to be able to, to listen and to help them process those decisions or those thoughts and help them walk through it. Like, what are your options? So if you did this, what would that look like? And if you chose to go this way, what would that look like? Now, which one do you feel is the best for you? Um, so just being that sounding board is, is critical. I'm also wondering, kind of hearing about some of these stories, what is the number of people that you're helping out with this program within a given time frame? I'd say on average, there's about 25 to 35 pickups in a month. It just, it really depends on, you know, when a person's going to be released or they've completed that. There's been days where we've literally had three people at at a time, you know, and taking three people around at the same time and taking them out to lunch. And each individual has different needs. You know, there are some standard stops that everybody needs, but some people may need to go to the bank. Um, Some people may need to go to social security office. You know, some may not. And so, um, it really is different for everyone. That just sounds so cool. Um, I'm just so glad that a service like this is here in Idaho. (laughs) Is there um, anything else that you wanted to share about the program or about your work um, that I didn't ask about? I think that this program is amazing and it's great if you're in Boise or district even, you know, like Caldwell and Nampa. There's a lot of challenges that are faced in in rural areas like Valley County, for example, and there's just not a lot of resources. There's also a, a magnified stigma in smaller counties because kind of everybody knows everybody. And so that can be another challenge that an individual could face. 
So, you know, one thing is for anybody that's listening, maybe, you know, this story's touched you or you're wanting to know how you can get involved or to, to help, right? Um, volunteers always, the most valuable thing that you can give away is your time. It's very much appreciated, but they can also make donations through our Pure Wellness website. More importantly, getting connected to your communities. If you're in a rural area, uh, reach out to some local churches if you can and just see what resources they may have for individuals that are coming back into that community. Also for Valley County, The Rock, you know, if anybody wanted to make donations for, you know, like gift cards for Walmart or, you know, some of those stores where individuals could get some work boots or things like that would be awesome. I just know that it's a lot harder in these smaller communities and um, definitely want to reach out to them and help them grow their resources to be able to help those people in their communities. That again was an interview with Rebecca Lee, nationally certified peer recovery support specialist, forensic peer support specialist, and former executive director of the Peer Wellness Center in Boise. Information about how to contact the organizations and services that Rebecca mentioned are available in our podcast show notes on our website, www.uidaho.edu slash echo hyphen podcast. If you're interested in joining our free live echo sessions to receive continuing education credit, learn best practices, ask a question, or grow your community, please visit our website at www.uidaho.edu echo, where you can register to attend, sign up to receive announcements, donate, and find out more information about our programs. Something for the Pain is brought to you by Echo Idaho, supported by the Whammy Medical Education Program and the University of Idaho, and is made possible by V-Corp, the Valley County Opioid Response Project. There's an epidemic going around called OPIOID. In the gym state, the overdose rate is on the RISE. To change it will take community-wide EFFORT. That's why they started VCOR, the VCORP. Well, I'm glad to know in Idaho there's the VCORP. A Valley County INITIATIVE. A community wide effort to reduce opioid OD through prevention, education, treatment, and recovery. We here at Echo also want to hear your feedback. We welcome your questions, comments, and suggestions and invite you to email us at echoidaho at uidaho.edu. And don't forget to subscribe to Something for the Pain using your podcast app. And if you have a moment, write us a review. Something for the Pain is made possible by grant number GA1RH39585 from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Health Resources and Services Administration, HRSA. Its contents are solely the responsibility of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official views of CDH or HRSA. Well, I'm glad to know that Idaho's got the VCORP Valley County INITIATIVE A community-wide effort to reduce opioid OD Through prevention, education, treatment, and recovery 
Youth Advocacy Coalition, well, we call it YAC. www.westcentralmountainsyouth.org With events and ways to get I-N-V-O-L-V-E-D And they're all a part of VCOR, that's the V-C-O-R-P. Voices you heard at the beginning of the episode were those of Radha Sadacharan, Monica Forbes, and Rebecca Lee, respectively. We'd also like to thank the other contributing voices on today's episode, Lachelle Smith, Melanie Nash, and Larissa Janishek. We'd also like to thank the other members of our 2021 Perinatal Substance Use Disorder Series panel, Nicole Fox, Rachel Root, Stacy Seib, Allison Smith, and Jerry Woodworth. We'd also like to thank all of our listeners, without whom none of this would be possible. Without you, we'd just be talking to ourselves. Lachelle Smith is the Echo Idaho Program Director. Katie Palmer is our Assistant Director. Our Marketing Manager is Lindsay Lotus. Our Program Managers are Lindsay Winters-Jewel and Samson Nde. Our Grant Services Manager is Kayla Blades. Sam Steffen is our Digital Media and Communications Specialist. Jessica Whitlock is our Continuing Education Coordinator. Our Program Coordinators are Jocelyn Elvira and Laura Jackson. Well, the E stands for extensions, looking where we aim to be. CH is for community health care, the welfare of you and me. O is for the outcome.